Welcome to Russian History Retold, episode 230, 1917, part 3. Last time, we covered the events of 1917 up until the time that Tsar Nicholas II became Citizen Nicholas after his abdication. Today, we continue the journey through the most tumultuous year in Russian history. Before we go on to the events, I want to bring up something that Nicholas did in his final moments as Tsar, which was highly illegal. In 1797, Tsar Paul issues the Law of Succession. In it, he states that the line of succession can only go from father to son. Nicholas gave up his throne, naming his brother, Michael, as heir. Even if Michael had agreed, and he didn't, it would have been an illegal succession and would have thrown the crown into a tizzy. Before Nicholas abdicated, he dissolved the Duma, so when he left office, there was no legitimate government in Russia. This left the provisional government with a serious problem. Was it really the legitimate heir of the leadership and rule of Russia? It would bedevil them until they were out of power. One of the reasons Michael Romanov rejected the offer to become czar was his wish to have a constituent assembly, known as the Zemsky Sabor, called on just as it was when his ancestor, the first Michael Romanov, was named Tsar. This, of course, was never done. No Zemsky Sabor was there to save the monarchy. The date we begin this episode is Old Calendar, and it's March 16th. Nicholas is now a private citizen, and we have two groups vying for power in Russia. The first is the now disbanded Duma, which transformed itself into the Provisional Duma Committee. They represented the land-owning citizens of Russia. The second group was the Petrograd Soviet of Workers and Soldiers and Deputies. They would represent the working class, but would not make any claim to ruling Russia as they believed that a second revolution was coming, one that would arrive after a bourgeois government had to have its way first, per Marxist doctrine and predictions. Georgi Lvov, now the nominal head of the government, was a descendant of the Yaroslavl dynasty of Rurik princes. He was, by all accounts, a very weak leader, totally unprepared for the job. Lvov asked members of the leadership of the Petrograd Soviet to join him and the government, but all but one refused. The radical socialist Alexander Kerensky would serve. While the Petrograd Soviet acknowledged the provisional government, it never fully accepted its authority. Its first defiance was known as Order Number One. The order instructed soldiers and sailors to obey their officers and the provisional government only if their orders did not contradict the decrees of the Petrograd Soviet. One of the main problems facing the new provisional government 
was the ongoing war in the West. While the Western powers wanted Russia to continue in the war, making Germany fight on two fronts, there was a great deal of misgivings being expressed by the Allies' military attaches in Petrograd. Order number one was viewed by British General Alfred Knox as, quote, a death blow to the Russian army. In Petrograd, people were defacing signs of the imperial court. Any public place where the Romanov coat of arms appeared was ripped off and trampled. Photographs, paintings, and royal crests were eradicated. There was even talk of melting the statue of Peter the Great. Replacing them with the red flags of the Soviets. It was, by all accounts, a feeding frenzy. Winter then hit Petrograd again with a vengeance. A blizzard pretty much closed the streets down. No one dared to go out. It was reported that 15 to 20 feet of snow fell on, and this is the uh, new calendar, from Thursday, March 2nd, and it would last until March 5th. That was four days of snow. The newspapers returned, and as British journalist Arthur Ransom put it, quote, their tone and even form are so joyful that it's hard to recognize them. They are so different from the censor-ridden mutes and unhappy things of a week ago. Every paper seems to be executing a war dance of joy. It is as if all Russia had spat out the gags forced in the mouths by the old regime of oppression. What this tells me is that Nicholas and his ministers had vastly underestimated the mood of the people. It also shows that it is likely that if Nicholas had tried to give the people a constitutional monarchy for a government, he would likely have had been surviving through this ordeal. The people wanted to free themselves from the oppression that Nicholas had so often justified in his mind as being the only way to govern. He and his family, of course, would pay for this misjudgment with their lives. And I really do think that this was brought on by his father, Alexander III, and his autonomy and and his autocracy, as well as Nicholas I's ideals, and that had they followed along with Alexander II, and at that point had put in a constitutional monarchy, had he not been assassinated, Nicholas and his family would have survived and gone on. In a word of caution, James Stinton Jones, a South African-born engineer, said this about the newfound freedoms that the Russian people now enjoyed. Quote, To understand its uses and to know how to avoid its abuses, the poorer classes of Russia have never been accustomed to having an opinion of their own. Now they find themselves a political factor. They are hopelessly at sea, the prey of the last unscrupulous demagogue they have heard. It will take time for Russia to realize what she wants. There is no cohesion, no common ideal to inspire her people. She is conscious of having killed a dragon. That is all.
you could see in Jones's comments that the Bolshevik red tide had a chance. The demagogue Jones was talking about was coming. The man we know as Lenin was stuck in Switzerland, having no way to get back to Russia. He needed to get there, and he knew that. The question was, how? The war had effectively blocked all ways of entering Russia. The German government decided to step in and help. If they could get assurances from Lenin and the 32 other Russian revolutionaries that they would get out of the war, Germany stood a chance of winning. Just one month later, in April, Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, Lenin, would arrive on April 3rd at Petrograd's Finland station, where he would address the crowd. But right now, we're getting ahead of ourselves. A real problem arose around the country after the ouster of the Tsar. Businesses were having a problem getting their employees to come back to work at the wages they were paying them. It seemed that everyone wanted everything to change. They wanted higher wages, fewer hours of work per day, and a reduction in the number of days of work per week. Little was getting done, especially in Petrograd. The war effort, already in tatters, was now having even deeper supply problems. The provisional government, though, was completely blind to the supply issue. Now, they were still fully behind the war effort, something that would lead to their ultimate demise. And it's easy to say in hindsight that the provisional government should have known that it would be a good idea to pull out of the war. But their state of mind at the time has to be considered. As Maurice Paleologue, the French ambassador, noted when meeting with the ministers, quote, patriotism, intelligence, and honesty could be read on every face but they seemed utterly worn out with physical fatigue and anxiety. The task they have undertaken is patently beyond their powers. Heaven grant that they do not collapse under it too soon. We really have to think about this. Uh, as I said, the Russians have all of a sudden just got power of the people and not the czar. So somebody's got to make decisions. Well, no one had ever made decisions before. So we're now in a completely, you know, it's a vacuum that's been created. And this is why, you know, the whole idea about some demagogue or some leader to come out was so important. They were rudderless, leaderless. They didn't know where to go. And Paleolog, though, did know one man who stood out from the others, Alexander Kerensky. He commented that Kerensky was, quote, the most original figure of the provisional government. Still, the aftermath of the February Revolution weighed heavy on all involved. There was one other thing that began to become apparent. There were a lot of dead people to bury. Thousands of people were lying in makeshift morgues, some in coffins waiting burial, some laying frozen on the ground. Even more daunting was the task of finding the body of a loved one. As the Canadian reporter Florence Harper noted, that there were piles of men and women and children, blood-soaked and muddy, 
and that they had been thrown about, quote, as they had been picked up. One unusual thing that she noted is that almost none of the bodies had boots on. At the time, boots were a very valuable commodity and would be stolen from the corpses. Because of the large numbers of dead bodies to be buried, there was a mass funeral set for Thursday, March 23rd. The gravesite was originally planned to be in front of the Winter Palace, but it was moved to the Field of Mars, a place where the original protests started. The ground was so cold that shovels were useless, so dynamite had to be used to dig the gigantic hole. The funeral procession was so large that it took hours for the crowd to make it to the site. It is estimated that half a million people were in attendance. So, how many people in the February Revolution died is up for debate. Officially, 1,382 people died. Others estimate the number to be much, much higher. 7,000 was a number bandied about. According to Florence Harper, the lowest number she heard was 2,000, with the highest being 10,000. In a city of 2 million inhabitants in 1917, it is entirely possible that the higher number was likely. Maurice Paleolog said this about what he saw, quote, As I returned to the embassy by the solitary paths of the summer garden, I reflected that I had perhaps witnessed one of the most considerable events in modern history. For what has been buried in the red coffins is the Byzantine and Muscovite tradition of the Russian people, nay, the whole past of Orthodox Holy Russia. Author Helen Rappaport adds, quote, What he had witnessed was, in effect, the first major public act of what would become a new, official atheism. Thursday, March 23, 1917, was an enormous religious and cultural watershed from which Russia would not look back for 73 years. We've now begun April 1917. The United States of America declares war on Germany on the 6th. Canadian troops win a major fight at the Battle of Vimy Ridge. Estonians in Petrograd demand autonomy from Russia. But the most important event was the arrival of Vladimir Lenin at the Finland railway station on April 3rd. His return was on the Monday after the Russian Orthodox Easter. Lenin had been in exile for 16 years. Many believed that he was a German agent, hoping to get Russia out of the war. Others thought him to be just another crazy anarchist. Still others viewed him with concern, as his ideas, which were to come out later in the month, known as the April Thesis, called for a new revolution, condemning the provisional government. It had ten theses, which were published on the 17th. Here is a synopsis of the Ten Thesis, on which Lenin hoped to establish, with him as the leader. Condemns the provisional government as bourgeois and urges no support for it. 
as the, quote, the utter falsity of all its promises should be made clear. He condemns World War I as a predatory imperialist war and the revolutionary defensism of foreign social democratic parties calling for revolutionary defeatism. And he asserts that Russia is passing from the first stage of the revolution, which, owing to the insufficient class consciousness and organization of the proletariat, placed power in the hands of the bourgeoisie to its second stage, which must place power in the hands of the proletariat and the poorest sections of the peasants. The thesis also recognizes that the Bolsheviks are a minority in most of the Soviets against a block of all petty bourgeois opportunist elements from the social cadets and the socialist revolutionaries down to the organizing committee, Chekhidze, Tsevretilatili, etc., Stelkov, etc., etc. These are those who have yielded to the influence of the bourgeoisie and spread that influence among the proletariat. Calls for a parliamentary republic not to be established, and he calls this a retrograde step. He calls for a republic of Soviet workers, agricultural laborers, and peasants' deputies throughout the country, from top to bottom. He called for the abolition of the police, the army, and the bureaucracy, and for the salaries of all officials, all of whom are elective and displaceable at any time, not to exceed the average wage of a competent worker. It also calls for the weight of emphasis in the agrarian program to be shifted to the Soviets of agricultural laborers' deputies. It also calls for a confiscation of all landed estates and the nationalization of all lands in the country. The land to be disposed of by the local Soviets of agricultural laborers and peasants' deputies. The organization of separate Soviets of deputies of poor peasants. The setting up of a model farm on which on each of the large estates, ranging in size from 100 to 300 dissetines, according to local and other conditions, and to the decisions of the local bodies. Under the control of the Soviets of agricultural laborers, deputies, and for the public account. Here's a number of other points. What we have to understand is the con condemnation of the provisional government. And he really focused on this predatory imperialist war, that this was a war for capitalism. This had nothing to do with people or ideas or religions. It was just predatory. And that other countries should start seeing this. And then these foreign social democratic parties calling for revolution. Second part is very important, that he asserted that Russia was passing from the first stage of the revolution to the second. We have to understand that under Marxist theory, the bourgeoisie had to come about. So we go from monarchy to a capitalist society, and then, and only then, could we have the proletariat take over. So what Lenin had to do was convince people that he was still following Marx's ideas. 
and that the power is in the hands of the bourgeoisie. It's in that power hands of uh, provisional government. And now it can move on to the third stage where the communists could take over. Now, he knew that the Bolsheviks were a smaller group than, say, the Mensheviks, and that there was this problem between the two. And he knew that, but they were they were an important bloc, you know, and then his the opponents were the social cadets and the socialist revolutionaries. And that we have to make sure that these two, you know, these other groups were not that important. They didn't, ha- and they didn't. They were leaderless. So only he and the Bolsheviks could take that lead. And they wanted to have a parliament and become a republic. But he did not want this to be established. And, and it would become established, but then in 1918, and you know, we'll get to this in the next episode, it was taken away. They closed it down. And that's when a lot of people realized, uh-oh, the Bolsheviks want complete control over everything. So he wanted this republic of Soviet workers, these agricultural laborers and peasant deputies. He had a lot of labels for all these different types of groups that he wanted to have formed. And that was part of his brilliance as a leader. And one of the ways that you get there is you make these labels up so people can understand them better. Now, the abolition of the police, the army, and the bureaucracy, that was an important thing because he wanted this these are powerful groups. So we wanted those to be shut down so that they didn't have any obstacles to taking over. And to the people, he wanted to appeal to them. And that's when he went to the salaries of the officials had to be the same as the average wage of a competent worker. This appealed to the people and they're starting to say, hey, you know, this guy wants to uh, even things up because these officials have always been, you know, kind of you know, wealthy and the nobility and stuff. So it's about time that we earn as much as they do or they earn as much as we do. And this shifting of emphasis in agrarian programs and confiscation of all landed estates, the nationalization of all the lands, this would take it away from the people that, you know, the one percenters of Russia who had all the wealth, who had all the power, who had all the land, that the peasants and the workers wanted. So this was also another major point that Lenin had to put out there to make himself as popular as possible. Now, of course, another one is the immediate union of all banks in the country into a single national bank and the institution of control over it, the Soviet workers' deputies. When I was doing research on what happens to all the nobility, after the revolution, this was a major thing that happened to them. They couldn't access their money anymore because he had created this union of all the banks, all the control, and he could make sure that nobody had too much money. And remember, money is power. And he says that the big thing is it's not our immediate task to introduce socialism, but only to bring social production and the distribution of products at once under the control of the Soviet of workers' deputies. It's not an introduction to socialism going, here it is, here's an example. No, it's a direct takeover and forcibly putting socialism into power. So 
he went on for a number of party tasks, uh, the immediate convocation of a party congress. This is something very big in Russia. Or the, and then the future Soviet Union. And he wanted to change the name of the party. It was an amendment for kind of out-of-date minimum programs uh, to a commune state. And he didn't like the term social democracy. He thought that most official leaders throughout the world had betrayed socialism and deserted to the bourgeoisie because the money was there and they wanted that. And the name change would disassociate the Bolsheviks from the social democratic parties of Europe who supported the participation of their nation in World War I. And this is important because Lenin first developed this point in his 1915 pamphlet, Socialism and War, when he first called the pro-war social democrats social chauvinists. And he called for a new revolutionary international, an international against these so-called social chauvinists and against the center. This would become the common term the third international, which was formed in 1919. And these 10 theses were the basis of the October Revolution. Although there was an ongoing debate amongst Lenin's fellow Bolsheviks as to the details. There was great concern within the diplomatic corps about Lenin's call for Russia's withdrawal from the war. But they didn't think that Lenin would ever really come to power. If they did, I guarantee you, there would have been either British or American agents who would have taken him out. It's just given. It's kind of like with uh, Rasputin. The uh, evidence shows that he may have been taken out by a British Secret Service uh, agent. Uh, with the Americans finally entering on the side of the Allies, they really pressed the provisional government to remain in the fight as the war they believed was close to coming to an end. With the defeat of Germany... Russia would stand to gain territory, at least some reparations. The people of Russia, though, were tiring of the war, tiring of the promises made, first by the Tsar and then the provisional government, that a quick end to the conflict was at hand. This was a wedge issue that would bring more and more people over to the Bolshevik side. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time as we continue our saga about the most important year in Russian history, 1917. So until next time, das vidanya, ispasiba bolshoya.